listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. I once had a teacher explain that uh, greed is simply the feeling we get when we want things to be different than they are. Greed is the feeling we get when we wish things were other than, so to speak. Non-greed, therefore, would be a spacious opening that accepts. And if we can uncover that spacious opening, we are, in essence, quite literally walking into this space of, uh, uh, of total acceptance, of openness to what is. So how do we do that? <laughs> how is it that we uh, uncover this spaciousness? How is it that we, we open to something big? The obvious answer is, don't be small. That in other words, whenever we are engaging in life from a place that is fueled by grasping, that is fueled by grabbing onto, or that is fueled by pushing away from, whatever that might be, either grasp or an avoidance, when we are in either one of those places, we are living from greed. Greed for something that will, we believe at least, our mind believes, will give us solace, will present solitude, will give us peace. Or we go the other direction. We grasp for something other than what is presenting itself in the belief that that something other than what is will allow us to feel complete somehow. And the, the, the shame of it is that both moves, either towards something or away from something, both moves take us off center. Both moves take us into a place where we are grasping. And it's that energy that fuels our, uh, to be Buddhist about it, it fuels our delusion. It fuels our discomfort. It fuels our sense that something is not quite right. So, tonight the, uh, the theme, if you will, is to uncover that space underneath everything that is going on in life. Whatever pain you might be feeling, whatever sense of loss you might be feeling, whatever success you might be feeling, however much hubris you might be feeling, whatever it is, 
there is something underneath all of those feelings. And we give it a name. We call it peace. We call it being. We call it awareness. Some people call it God. You get to call it whatever you wish. But it's the source of all things. It gives birth to all things. And yet, paradoxically, it never moves. It just is. And when we can source our life from that presence, suddenly, the wishing for, the wanting for, the aversion, the grasping, whatever it is, all of that stuff seems to fall away kind of on its own. It's not something we have to work at. It just kind of undoes itself. So during your meditation tonight, um, it might be a very healthy practice for you to allow your greed to surface. What is it that you really, really, really long for? What is it that you ache for, you know? What is it that you wish was different? Dance with them. Okay? Don't push them away. Don't indulge them. But greet them as your partner, as your dance partner. Um, I, use, I use the metaphor dancing because, like, for instance, the indulgence would be like smooching with, with uh, someone or some situation. I, just stick with me. The, the metaphor is bizarre here, kind of. But uh, if, if you have a situation that's arising that you, are, are, that you indulge, it's as if you just kind of merge into it. And I'm talking about something that's different than that. Instead of merging into it, instead, allow yourself to be intimate with it. True intimacy is honesty. And that honesty exists in the space between your perception and what is. So dancing with it allows you to give it resistance and allows you to pull, right? That's the only way you can spin a dance partner is if he or she is giving you the right amount of resistance to your own. So as you begin to see whatever it is that's, that's pushing against you or whatever, know it. Become very intimate with it without smooching it and without running away from it. You're not trying to get anything from it. You're just trying to be right there fully. And that awareness of the situation, you will find, will carry you into each and every single situation that you might find. Your awareness of what's arising is still. It never moves. What arises will always cease. Something else may come up, and it will cease. And we recognize this rhythm of being. It's just stuff comes up, stuff comes down. What comes up? That's the only blood, sweat, and tears reference we'll have tonight, but still. Spin and wheel. Wheel of samsara. You get the idea. 
this is kind of the way it works for us. If we can just begin to hold that spaciousness without getting caught by what goes up or what goes down, we are off the wheel. And you may have seen those beautiful tankas, uh, those Buddhist tankas where they have the different realms that uh, you know you go in and so forth. If you haven't, they're these usually these gorgeous, very detailed uh, uh, pictures, usually in the jaws of uh, a demon. That demon actually is reality, okay? And then off that wheel is the Buddha, or our Buddha nature. And to put this in lay terms, it's our awareness. It's our awareness of the wheel that is not on the wheel. Our awareness of our misery is not affected by our misery. Our awareness of our bliss is not co-opted by our bliss. That awareness allows us to dance intimately with our experiences. Shall we boogie? Greed, greed, greed. Most amazing thing is that uh, I don't know if any of you have ever noticed. You've you've lived long enough. You've had enough experience that you recognize that life turns back around on itself. We experience things again. We find ourselves, in essence, where we have always been. But it's with a uh, new and refreshed sense somehow we go through an experience it beats us down or it lifts us up and we come back into this life with a wholly new sense of being and yet it's this very sense of being that hasn't really shifted uh, I was I was reading a, one of my one of my favorite uh, favorite authors uh, poets is T.S. Eliot and uh, I, I, ca I came across this again I, I always I'm always amazed when I read quartets that uh, uh, four quartets that that the you know the last stanza just about sums up um, much of spiritual teaching and so I'm going to read it to you real quickly here it's very short he says we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well, when the tongues of flame are infolded into the crown knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. So beautiful. 
the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the very first time. Of course, costing not less than everything. This is not a, uh, <laughs> this is not something, unfortunately, that can be managed with uh, something as small and insignificant as our ego. That's the teaching. And the ego is so skillful at creeping in through the back door, trying to manage this experience of spiritual unfolding. It can't do it. It tries. And, uh, you know, how cool is that, that we've got this little aspect of being, this little facet on this gem of us that is really, really convinced that it, it does all the great reflecting. That if you just look at it, you're going to see all the colors of the rainbow. Never mind these other facets. It's moi, me. I'm, <laughs> I'm the beautiful one. That's greed. And when we get to a place where we can come back to where we've always been, as if it were for the first time, we're allowing all the facets of our being to reflect the light of God equally. And that's our natural state. That's where nothing is needed. Nothing is wanted. We recognize that no matter what, no matter what, the sun is shining. Even if there are clouds out, the sun is still shining. It just depends on our perspective. And as many of us know, the most contagious thing in the world is somebody else's unconsciousness. It catches us. And if we can allow for their unconsciousness to be, and we don't attach to their unconsciousness, we just allow it, and we become intimate with it without <coughs> grasping it or trying to, you know, punch it or, or avert our, our, ourselves from it. We just are right there with it. If we can bring our consciousness into that contest, if you will, we recognize that there is no contest to be had. We are approaching life from a totally undivided state. We are whole. We are aware, and we're right there. We're not moving. And when we are right there and we are not moving, we are, in essence, physically embodying this amazing teaching, this amazing uh, reality, which is that there is stillness under everything that moves. Just like the sun is always shining, it is never not Still, peace is never not at hand. Everything is born from peace. Violence is born out of peace. And we get into violent places whenever we cling, whenever we are certain. whenever we're sure. At least that's probably true. <laughs> no, I'm sure of it, damn it. <laughs> so, 
I wanted to read, I came across this online, uh, this beautiful story that I remember was, it was one of the earlier Dharma talks that I ever heard. And this, uh, this uh, person who was giving this talk, she was uh, probably one of the least interesting people I'd ever met in the practice. But man, could she read stories like a, the best second grade teacher alive. You know, I mean, it was just, so what she would do is many times her Dharma talks would be these, you know, rather ex extensive stories. And I was always so thankful whenever, you know, I, I was like going to one of her Dharma talks and she'd break out a book. I was like, oh, okay, because I had this egoic clinging to, you better fire me up. If I'm, if I'm driving all the way out here and, and I'm going to meditate, you know, through these sore knees of mine, you, it, this better be good. Um, I soon learned that the, the profundity, if you will, of this woman was so far beyond the words that she was giving. I wasn't able to see her presence when I was in this deeply egoic state of, of spiritual practice. I, I couldn't recognize it until much later. And um, I consider her now to just be, I mean, she's, she's just, just amazing. Just amazing. Anyway, this was a story that she told. I'm going to abridge it maybe a little bit because um, it, it looks really long. It's actually not, and I'm sure all of you are familiar with it, but it relates very much to spiritual work. It's called The Fisherman and His Wife. A fisherman and his wife lived in a hut close to the sea. They were very, very poor. The man used to go out in his boat all day to catch fish, and he would fish and fish, and fish. Some days he caught all that he and his wife could eat. Some days he caught more. And then they had fish to sell. And then some days he caught none at all. One day he, uh, as he sat in his boat with his fishing rod in his hand, gazing out into the sea, he felt his line get pulled. He drew it up and there was a fine, large fish fast on the end of his hook. Please put me back. Please put me back, said the fish. Why so, said the fisherman. I'm not a real fish, said the fish. I may look like one, but I'm actually a prince that has been bewitched. Please put me back and let me go. Of course I'll put you back, said the man. I don't want to eat fi uh, fish that can talk. I would rather have no dinner at all. This is karma, you see. Karma woven in there. Then he took the fish off the hook and threw it back into the sea. There was a long streak of blood in the water behind, behind it as it sank out of sight. The fisherman gazed into the sea a while and then went home in his boat. Did you catch any fish today, said his wife. Only one, he said. I caught a fine large one, but it said that it was a prince, and so I threw him back into the sea. Did you ask it for anything, said the woman. No, said the man. What would I ask of a fish? You might have asked, uh, might have asked it for a nice little cottage instead of this hovel. It's very hard to live all our lives in this wretched little hut. Ask a fish for a cottage, he said. Do you think it would give us one? Certainly, she said. Have you never heard the song, ask, ask anything of a talking fish, and he will give you what you wish. Now get into your boat and go call him. Say that we want a little cottage with three rooms, a vine climbing over the door, and a really nice kitchen. <laughs> the, <laughs> the man did not like, did not want to go back at all. But his wife kept talking and talking and talking till at last he got into his boat and rowed away. When he came to the right place where he had caught the fish, the sea was green and dark and not bright and clear as it was before. He stood up in his boat and sang, 
Once a prince, but now a fish. Come and listen to my wish. Come for my wife, Nancy Bell. Wishes what I fear to tell. All at once, the fish stuck his head up out of the water and said, Well, what is it you want? I don't want anything, said the man, but my wife wants a neat little cottage with three rooms, a vine climbing over the door, and a nice kitchen. Go home, said the fish. She'll have it. He gets home. Isn't it nice? Said the wife. Yes, said the man. And we will live here and be happy for the rest of our lives. We'll think about it, said the wife. All went very well for three or four weeks. Then the woman began to find fault with things. The house was too small for her, and so was the yard, and so was the garden. How I should like to be a fine lady and live in a great stone castle, she said. This cottage is just not enough for me. It may be not good enough for you, the man said, but it's perfect for me. She said, no, you need to go back. Go back to the fish and tell him to make us a great stone castle. I don't want to go, he said. The fish gave us this cottage. He might not like it if we asked him for something else. He won't care, said the wife. Go and ask him at once. I cannot bear to live in this little house another day. Go, go, now. The man got into his boat and rowed slowly away. And when he came to the place where he had caught the fish, he stood up and sang, Once a prince, but now a fish. Come and listen to my wife's wish. Come for my dear Nancy Bell wishes what I fear to tell. Well, what does she want now? asked the fish after he popped his head out. I like the cottage best, said the man, but she wants to live in a great stone castle. A great stone castle it is, said the fish. Go home. She's standing at the door, waiting for you. So the fisherman turned his boat, rowed back home, and there, close to the sea, was a great stone castle and a very fine lady <laughs> who looked like his wife, standing at the door. Isn't this grand, said the woman, who indeed was his wife. Yes, said the man, and we will live happy for the rest of our lives here. Well, we'll think about it. All went well until the next morning. Husband, get up, she said. Get up and look out the window. I wish I was king of all this land. Why so, said the husband. I think we are well, well enough off as we are. I don't want to be king. Well, I want to be queen, said the wife. Go back and tell the fish, tell him so. The fisherman did, want, did not want to go. It's not right. It's not right, wife. But his wife said, go, go now. So he got into his boat. Yada, yada, yada. Fish says, go check it out. Guess what? Isn't this glorious, she said. I am now queen of this land. Yes, now we have nothing else to wish for. I don't know about that, said the wife. But you have to be satisfied now. You have to be satisfied, wife. You have to be. No, not necessarily. That night she lay in bed, thinking and thinking, and wishing that there was something else she could have. The fisherman slept well and soundly, for he had done a good deal of work that day, rowing back and forth and back and forth. But his wife turned from one side to the other, tossing and turning the whole night. She finally shook her husband. Get up, get up, go out to the fish and tell him that I want to be God. The fisherman was so frightened he fell out of bed. Then he rubbed his eyes and said, What did you just say? I want to be God. 
I want to be master of the sun. I want to make it rise and make it set when I choose. Oh, wife, said the man all in a tremble. You do not want to be God. That's just exactly what I want to be, she said. Go out to the fish and tell him so. You'd better let well enough alone, said the man. You are queen of all this land. Let us be contented. This made the woman very angry. She pushed him with her foot and screamed, I will not be contented. I will not be contented. Go and do as I bid. I am the queen. So the man hurried away in his boat. Instead of the sea being clear, instead of it being windy, instead of the waves rolling just a little, it was as dark as ink. The thunder rolled and lightning flashed and the winds blew terribly. So he shouted out loud, Oh, once a prince, but now a fish. Come and listen to my wife's wish. Come, for Queen Nancy Bell wishes what I fear to tell. What does she want now? asked the fish. She wants, she wants to be God, said the man. She wants to be God, does she? Yes, that's what she wants to be. Go home then, said the fish. You will find her in the poor little dirty hut by the sea. And there the fisherman and his wife are living to this day. It was God all along. At least that's one way of looking at it. Our greed can lead us right into awakening. There's this switch that kind of goes off in our heads. It's, uh, don't be greedy. That's probably an appropriate switch to go off in your head. At the same time, the depth of our spiritual work really begins to bubble up to the surface when we really can become intimate with our greed, when we really can figure out what it is that isn't going exactly the way we'd like it to go. And upon doing that, what we can uncover typically is something quite beautiful. We realize that the stillness that's under everything, including all of our wants and desires, is absolutely complete. This emptiness that we talk about in Buddhism is actually total fullness. There is nothing lacking from this moment. And that's really hard for egos to even approach. They usually freak out at that. And they do it in a number of different ways. Either it's personal. What do you mean? I don't have X, Y, and Z, and these are things I really want. Or it can be a little bit more uh, global in its orientation. What do you mean? What do you mean? Look at all the starvation that's going on, the wars that are going on, all, all of this stuff. There are people saying stuff on TV that they just shouldn't be saying. Whatever it is. Those are opportunities for our egos to get caught. An action that comes from a caught ego is something we call karma. And the way you can describe karma most simply, at least the way I've heard it, and I think it works so beautifully, is it's a tangle. It's not interconnectedness that's conscious. It's a tangle of unconsciousness. It's as if everything is in a knot when we are acting from a place of greed, 
either for something or greed for something other than what the universe is offering us. And so our practice, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to recognize what it is that you have that you're absolutely, totally content with. Take a few seconds of gratitude every single day. What are you thankful for? Is it possible not to want what you don't have? Of course it is. Even in this culture where we are taught to want more. Some of you may have heard my uh, description of my deep want for a Munster's lunchbox. I wanted a Munster's lunchbox with Herman Munster on it. I did not want a Stuart plaid lunchbox. My mom, bless her heart, got me the Stuart plaid lunchbox. And I was, it was by far, the, looking back on it now, that was the coolest damn lunchbox in the entire school. I mean, it looked, it, it, looking back on it, it, that looks sharp. I mean, the only thing that would have been better would have been like a, no, you know what, that was it. That was, that, was the, that was the coolest looking lunchbox. But I wanted the Munsters. And, uh, you know, one of my friends uh, had the Partridge family, which I thought was stupid because I thought, I thought Keith Partridge was a doofus. <laughs> and I got in trouble and I got beat up once for saying that um, in kindergarten because the Partridge family was famous and you don't know anything. But anyway, it's a, that's a silly story. But uh, I don't know why I'm telling it. But the idea here is that we go into these spaces of deep, nearly cataclysmic want and greed for a particular object or a particular experience or a particular person. Getting intimate with that want usually lessens its intensity. It allows for clarity. It allows for us to see that, you know what, this plaid lunchbox is pretty badass. This is, this is working just fine. Now, I never told my mom, of course, that that was like so, I did reach that, that point of realization where the plaid lunchbox was just fine. So I'll tell her now, thanks, mom, it worked fine. Yeah. Um, that was a great lunchbox, by the way. <laughs> you guys, this isn't set up. That actually is my mom. So, uh, um. <laughs> But all of us have, all of us have a Munster's lunchbox in us. Every one of us has that experience. Maybe it's, maybe it's something that's deeply compelling right now. Can you become intimate with it? Can you recognize that no matter what, you're complete? The reality of this situation that you're in right now is still filled with the potential for freedom and peace that getting one more thing, one more degree, a new relationship, whatever it is, getting one more thing isn't going to get you any closer to peace than you already are right now. 
as hard as that is to hear maybe, for 3,500 years, wisdom traditions have been pointing us in that very direction. And we uncover that felt sense of peace whenever we start engaging in this practice with our full heart and mind. Go Stuart Plaid. We have a few minutes for Q&A, if anybody cared it. Yes? Um, I may have to ask you this in 10 years, but mm -hmm. how do you talk to an 11 or 12-year-old that's obsessed with the Munster Lunchbox? Yeah, you need to talk to me in 10 or 12 years. I have no idea how that's going to work. Um, I can tell you, I can tell you <coughs> the most successful kids I've ever seen come into my classroom. I taught junior high for a while and I teach high school. Uh, the most successful kids I've ever seen are kids that understand limits. Setting compassionate limits for our children. It's okay to be hated by your kids, you know? And there's this obsession, it seems, that we want to be friends with our kids. They don't need any more friends. I would actually even propose that what I've seen in my years in front of kids, that there's way too much inappropriately high self-esteem out there. It's off the charts. And so kids don't know how to fail. They don't know how to deal with lack. They don't know how to deal with not getting what they want when they want it. Remember Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? I want an Oompa Loompa now, you know, Veruca Salk was, now, Daddy, now. That's, that's in, in many respects what, um, uh, what, what we can see in a lot, of the, a lot of the stuff that our kids are going through. You know, there's been a lot of Veruca out there. And so I can only tell you what my plan is with my kid, <laughs> you know. Um, I'm fortunate in that I, I've, I've married some, someone who's very kind of, really, really clear about this, and she also is a specialized in developmental psychology and so forth, but making sure that the limit of no is done lovingly and compassionately and resolutely. Try it on, see what it feels like, and then please report back to me so I can know <laughs> if it works. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, finally. Yeah, um, the the best question a kid can get, I think, from a, from a, a a wisdom and compassion perspective, is is the the question, uh, what is your mind state right now? What is your mind state right now? How are you feeling in your body right now? Those two questions force the witness. It forces, it's out, it forces it out of hiding. You can't answer the question, what is your mind state, without checking in and observing. The observer, therefore, is strengthened. And when the kid can carry their mind state into their day-to-day, their -day, into their world, what happens is that that awareness usually begins to blossom and grow nicely. Not all the time. 
And indeed, I would say the danger is that for us to want to prematurely enlighten our 10, 11, and 12-year-olds puts us in a really interesting space because at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, on into you know, 18, indeed, you could argue about 24, 25 years old, the, the most important thing we can do is build structure. Is that, have that ego in place so that it then can be let go of by this deeper consciousness. This deeper consciousness can then take root only out of uh, kind of a, a bizarrely hardened sense of egoic development. If we short-circuit that, in other words, if the, if the kid never develops any clear sense of self and other, if there's never a sense of otherness, never a sense of selfness, what do we have? We have a kid who has no boundary. And this shows up as borderline personality disorder. It shows up as all sorts of other stuff. Depression can come from all, all sorts of stuff when, when, the, when the kid doesn't have a clear sense of who they are. And it doesn't mean a clear sense of who they are by giving them inappropriate praise, let's say, or, or puffing up um, an ego as much as it is. I'm in here. Everything else is out there so that they then can learn that that is indeed illusory. Similarly, we don't teach kids to read before they learn the alphabet. You gotta learn that alphabet. And then the alphabet is utterly transcended when we are in the middle of a flow. I, I'm reading uh, Dan Brown's new book, and I, I just lock into some of these, I mean, it's so much fun. And what's fun for, uh, what you can try, is recognize how many times you notice what letter is in a word that you're reading. It doesn't even register. Why? We've let go of it. We don't deny the alphabet, but we're no longer obsessed with sounding out words, unless it's really complicated. Does this make sense? Sim uh, I, guess, I guess the best way I could say it is, uh, by all means, bring your kid to you know, Spirit Rock or, or to Green Gulch or one of the other local meditations. All those things, I think, are fine. Um, helping a kid recognize what's going on, really, that's the work. And then for each of us to ask ourselves the same questions. How does this feel in my body right now? What is my mind state right now? Especially when it gets hot in, in the kitchen, so to speak. Uh oh, and then report back, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. <clears throat> so, in terms of this uh, grasping kind of thing that you're talking about, um, it's easy to understand the lunchbox thing, and it's really easy to understand, you know, <clears throat> a lot of destructive wants that you have and mm -hmm. so on. What seems to be really tricky is when you get that to the level of, of am I uh, pining for no fear? Right. Or am I grasping for liberation. Mm -hmm. um, what do you do at that point? The same thing. 
the same exact thing. The practice is identical. When we wish for the monster's lunchbox, or we wish for freedom, that's still this, it's it, the same internal impulse. Okay? Both are fine. One's going to take you to a thing. The other one's going to take you to a thing that you've already constructed in your head. You've, you've already figured out, here's what this has got to look like. Here's what this will bring me. Here, right? It's the same thing, subtle differences only. So the practice is then watching how that wish, how that desire, how that craving, how greed actually can begin to inform what it is that we're doing. And how in no cases, in no cases is, uh, can a grasp or a grasping orientation do much more than keep us from the infinite's blessing. So it's when we recognize how to let go of our craving for no fear that we utterly become fearless. Cake, right? Do you have a follow-up? I know you pretty well, so I know when you've got the churning look on your face. It seems like you have the churning look going right now. How can it be greedy when it's something that's supposed to be good? Yeah. <laughs> that's not a question. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to be good. And that's a great story. Don't cling to it. You have no idea. As a matter of fact, one of the coolest lines about awakening that I've ever heard, and I've shared this with you guys several times, but uh, uh, enlightenment is not what you think it is. So whatever you think enlightenment might be, that's just a mental construct, your mind giving birth to a thing, okay? Giving birth to a monster's lunchbox. It's the same type of thing. This will bring me peace. This lunchbox will bring me peace. This PhD will bring me peace. A brand new Volvo will bring me peace. No, Prius. Yes, that will bring the world peace. Yeah, right? Whatever it is, we keep looking for these, these external things that we've created that take us into this seeking mode. And when we are busy seeking, we are definitely not able to find, believe it or not. Seeking is attaching to an idea and finding occurs when we have let go. That impulse can still carry us places. The impulse for there not to be injustice in the world, as long as it is open and comes from an undefended place, you know, where it's non-oppositional, what do we do? We then employ our inner Gandhi, our inner Martin Luther King. We become agents of peace because we've let go of it. And egos freak at that moment. So be really alive to the subtle, the subtle, uh, the subtlety of of ego in that space. See where it takes you, and please keep asking the questions. Thank you so much for coming.